Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Medina East Campus of Grace Church. I love that. They told me to come up on stage when they said the word sausage, so I'm here. But uh, good morning, everyone. If you don't know me, just uh, give me a second to introduce myself. My name is Seth. I am one of the pastors here at the Medina East Campus. Uh, I'm really excited this morning that we are continuing in the series that we have been calling If Jesus Rose from the Dead. And so essentially, if you're looking to kind of get a high-level summary or an overview of what we're aiming to do in this series, Man, the title to the series kind of says it all. We're really looking to focus our minds and our attentions uh, on this idea of the resurrection, specifically Jesus's resurrection. And we're saying that, man, if Jesus rose from the dead, then that is gonna be really significant, that that's gonna have some profound ramifications for how we not only view Jesus, who he is and who he said he was and what he did, but also our own lives as well. And so kind of the approach that we've been taking throughout the series is we have been leveraging this if-then statement and completing that statement each week in some different ways. And so we said two weeks ago, when we launched the series on Easter weekend, we used this statement. We said, if Jesus rose from the dead, then it says something about Jesus. Uh, In other words, Jesus made a lot of claims while he was walking around in his earthly ministry here on the earth before he ascended into heaven, made a lot of claims specifically about forgiving sin at the cross and being raised to new life and kind of that being the proof of forgiveness of sin that's offered to other people. So man, if Jesus rose from the dead, it says something about Jesus that his claims regarding those things are 100% true. And then last week, we completed the if-then statement by saying, if Jesus rose from the dead, then it says something about my past. It says something about my past. So this week, our if-then statement, we're gonna conclude it like this. If Jesus rose from the dead, it says something about my present life, all right? So if Jesus rose from the dead, it says something about my present life. Now, the way I wanna begin this morning is actually with a personal story. Um, It's kind of a, a, a moment in my life. It's a story about a moment in my life that was very pivotal, um, and it was also very embarrassing. So here's the deal, kind of a disclaimer uh, right off the bat this morning. Um, I am opening up my very soul to all of you in front of this vast sea of people, lovely faces, by the way. Um, I'm opening up my soul. My wife says that I need to express my emotions a little bit more. So please reward me. I need your validation during this story, okay? All right, so the story goes something like this. When I was in eighth grade, okay, uh, I was in the Aurora City School System. And in eighth grade, I had been playing baritone horn in the uh, band for three years, okay, since fifth grade to eighth grade. And when I was in eighth grade, um, the high school band, the Aurora High School Marching Band, was invited to go down to Disney World to march in this really important, like really big parade. And so uh, the band director at the time, he decided that he kind of wanted to bolster the instrumentation up a little bit uh, for the trip that they were gonna take down there. And so he invited several eighth graders to join the high school band, and I was kind of nominated or I was extended the invitation to do that. Uh, They called them eighth grade marchers. So I was an eighth grade marcher. So um, I talked it over with my parents because it was really an honor. I mean, uh, you, don't, you, you can't just hang with the high school band unless you got the chops, you know what I'm saying? So it was an honor. I talked with my parents and they scrounged up the money and they, they sent me off to Florida. And, and I just remember thinking going to Florida that this is it. This is the moment that's going to begin me skyrocketing off into stardom as the principal piece of the lower brass section of the Aurora High School band. Me and my baritone horn, look out world, right? And you can tell based on this guy, right? That that is completely true. This picture also tells you why I was never invited or asked to go to prom. Anyway, (laughs) nevertheless. So here was the itinerary for the trip. 
Day one, we were going to take a 21-hour charter bus ride down to Florida, which you can imagine would be like a nightmare with a bunch of high school students and a, a, a sprinkle of eighth graders. At day two, we were going to march in the parade. Day three, then, we were kind of given the day off. We were going to be able to go to Universal Studios and just have fun. And then day four, we were going to hop back on that charter bus, and we were going to make our return trip back to Ohio. And so day one went well. Surprisingly, we got down to Florida. Day two, it was awesome to be able to march in a parade in Disney World. Really cool experience. And so day three rolls around, and uh, several of my eighth grade marcher friends and I were kind of hanging out at Universal Studios. We're just bouncing from one attraction to another, just having an absolute blast. And uh, there was one moment where uh, we're getting off one ride, and of course they have to uh, strategically place gift shops at the end of the ride, so you have to navigate through them. And so I was trying to get through this gift shop to the exit, and time stopped. It all stood still, and I saw her. I saw her. She was beautiful. We, we actually locked eyes, and I knew from that moment forward my life was never going to be the same. It's like one of those moments in a movie where the lights around you sort of dim, and uh, there's a spotlight on the, uh, the newfound object of your affection. And everything just seems to go hazy and warm. And you hear that song, every breath you take. And there, right in front of me, <clears throat> I had locked eyes with the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. I locked eyes with an officially licensed replica of a Darth Vader helmet. That's right. I, re I remember thinking, Two things simultaneously when I saw this. Number one, I want that. Like, I have to have that. And then the second thing I thought was, man, I'm going to be so boss when Halloween rolls around. Like, I'm going to be the coolest kid on the block. Nobody else has this. I'm going to march around grabbing candy from random strangers' house, houses in my neighborhood, looking like Darth Vader, like, Luke, you are my father, sort of deal, right? And so I remember thinking those two things. And uh, but the next thing I did is I kind of slowly paced toward the Darth Vader helmet, Finally laid my hands on it, turned it around, and I looked at the price tag, and it was a cool $50, $50. And then the next thing I did was what any eighth grader growing up in the mid-90s would do. I opened my fanny pack, and <clears throat> I grabbed the wad of cash. Now, mind you, all the cash that I had left that was supposed to be for my meals the rest of the day and the next day to get me home, I tabulated all of it, weighted in the balanced scales of the cosmos, and I had $52, just enough for the Darth Vader helmet plus the tax that it was going to cost. Now, I pondered it over for a long time. It must have been about five seconds. And lo and behold, I made my decision. I staked my claim. This is my Darth Vader helmet. Yeah, yeah. And frighteningly, you're not applauding for me, you're applauding for a helmet. That's kind of strange, but uh, I'll take it. Uh, thanks for the validation. No, it's good. So I have my Darth Vader helmet, and I am super enthused about this, right? And, and I started thinking, like, I bought into this thing. All that I had, every ounce, like every last penny of what I had went to buy this thing, right? So I knew I had bought into something at one point, and I knew that there was going to be a glorious future come Halloween time where I was gonna be boss, right? Walking around my neighborhood with a stroll and a lightsaber and this helmet on my face. But here's the thing. When the next day rolled around at breakfast, then at the pit stop to gas up where everyone was buying Slim Jims and Sprees by the dozen, 
at lunch, another pit stop, dinner, late night snack. Here's what happened. Every time we sat down to eat something, I sat down with my friends and I'm looking at them across the table and they are just chowing down on double cheeseburgers, fries, like sipping back on Cokes like it is their job, apple pies, milkshakes, more Slim Jim, more Spree, more Slim Jim, more Spree. I'm looking at them having the time of their lives and I'm sitting there across the table holding my Darth Vader helmet. (laughs) You see, I actually, strangely enough, I think that is a great way to describe uh, what a lot of Christ followers feel when they think about the possible implications of the resurrection, Jesus's resurrection, for our present life. Like, how does the resurrection matter right now? Because a Christ follower, this is, this is what a Christ follower says, that they buy into Jesus's death and resurrection by faith. They trust him. They believed in something they went all in in the past. They gave it everything they have. And that the the scripture, like the Bible says that when someone does that, they are promised a glorious future. Like a Christ follower in the future when Jesus returns is gonna receive this fully blown like resurrection body in the new heavens and the new earth. And it is gonna be glorious. Like we're gonna be boss there in the new heavens and the new earth. They buy in the past, there's a promise of a glorious future. And yet in the meantime, the question then becomes, how is this significant for today? It feels like so often, for the, at least for the Christ follower, like we're sitting across the table watching everybody else in our lives just live it up and have a great time. And it feels like with this resurrection thing, we're just standing there holding a Darth Vader helmet. And so the question that we have to ask is, what if any implication, what if any impact does the resurrection have on our present life? I mean, am I just to bide my time until Jesus comes back? And am I just to try not to sin less? Try to screw less stuff up? Try to not do as many bad things? Or is there something, is there a power in the resurrection that's applicable and useful for my daily living? Now, fortunately for us, the Bible has a lot to say about this. Uh, Not least the Apostle Paul, when he writes a letter to a group of Christ followers in Rome, in Romans chapter six, verses one through four. So here's the deal. If you brought your Bibles with you this morning, you can go ahead and get those out. Uh, If your Bible is on uh, like an app on your phone or your tablet or whatever, you can make your way to Romans 6, 1 through 4. I'll also say that if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there are some Bibles underneath the seats in front of you. And in those Bibles, Romans 6, 1 through 4, will be on page 785 in those Bibles so you can follow along. The text will also be up on the screen for you so we can do that this way. So let's read what Paul has to say to this group of Christ followers and see if we can land on this question about what we do with the resurrection in present day life. This is what Paul says. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. You see, we are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live, present tense, continuous, we too may live a new life. 
Now, when we come into Romans chapter six, verse one, I think it becomes reasonably obvious that we are jumping into the middle of a flow of thought that Paul has already established throughout the entirety of chapter five. So there are some principles, concepts, or ideas that Paul has thoroughly laid out in the previous chapter that help us understand why he would then ask this question, what, what shall we say then? It's almost like what Paul is saying here is, in other words, like what are we to conclude in light of the principle that I just outlined in the entirety of chapter five? Now, certainly we don't have the time or the space today to comb chapter five for this, but if I can just kind of say what Paul says there in chapter five in summary, it might go something like this. That Paul says, God's grace, okay, and God's grace is his predisposition, like his inclination to be for human beings his desire to bless them, his desire to love them and do things in his power that would help them to flourish and grow. So Paul says in Romans chapter five that that, that God's grace is always bigger and more powerful than human sin. Bigger and more powerful than the messes we make with our lives as a result of sin. So bigger, more powerful, more vivid, stronger, that like the more we screw things up, the more human beings mess themselves up and their relationships in this world, the bigger God's grace is shown to be in covering over those things because he sent Jesus at the cross to forgive those things. Now, the logic kind of goes something like this. If we're gonna pull this forward into a modern day, it might go something like this, that if I had a credit card debt and that credit card debt was $100, okay? And let's just say my credit card company in an act of benevolence decides that they are going to forgive that $100 debt. Now, this is obviously a hypothetical scenario because no credit card company in their right mind would do this, but just stay with me. So $100 debt, the credit card company decides they are going to cover that debt. They're gonna forgive that debt. Now, that is assuredly an act of grace by the credit card company on my behalf. Like, I did not deserve for them to forgive that debt. What I did deserve is the responsibility to pay that thing back, to pay back what I owed. Now, again, assuredly, that's an act of grace, but... If the debt that I owed to that credit card company was a million dollars versus the hundred, and they decided to cover over or relieve me of that debt, man, there is something new and profound that I understand about the nature of the grace that is shown to me. Grace is shown to be bigger and more vivid in my life because of the great vast debt that has been forgiven. Now, assuredly, in both scenarios, the $100 and the million dollars, grace is shown to be powerful to forgive. But again, I am going to understand something more personally about the depth and the length and the breadth and the weight of the grace that is shown to me in the million dollar example than I would in the $100 example. Okay, so with that in mind, Paul says, what then shall we say? In other words, all right, so given this sin principle, given the grace principle and the vividness of God's grace, what are we to conclude about that? And he says, shall we go on sinning so that grace might increase? Now, some of you already see this here. Paul is addressing a potential misconception that could arise based upon the principles that he's laid out back there in chapter five. He says, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? In other words, if the principle goes like this, well, the bigger the sin debt, the more vivid the grace. Well, why don't I just live it up? Why don't I just rack up the sin debt beyond measure? 
to the nth degree, like exponential debt. Why don't I just make the biggest mess possible? Paul, Paul's argument kind of goes along these lines. Well, well, why don't I just buy the Maserati? Why, why don't I just, you know, buy the beachfront property in Santa Monica, right? Just buy the whole beach. Why don't I buy the 24 karat gold wristband for my Apple watch, right? Live it up, spending spree, treat yourself, right? Because if the more I screw things up, the more God's grace and his character is shown to be vivid, well, why don't I just rack that debt up beyond measure? So Paul addresses this misconception by this rhetorical question. And then he responds almost to himself by saying, by no means. In other words, absolutely not. Like guys, it doesn't work that way. This is not the way that grace is to function. And then Paul moves on to kind of address why it doesn't work that way. He says this, we are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Now, it's interesting here. The way Paul, like if we're careful readers, the way Paul says this, like we might not expect Paul to say what he says here in the way that he says it. Okay, given everything that we know from chapter five and these principles, I think we might expect to say logically that Paul would say something like this, like we are those who have died to sin. How can we still commit sin? How can we still behave poorly? How can we still do actions that rack up that debt? But notice that's not what Paul says. Paul says, how can we live in it any longer? How can we live in sin any longer? So what does it mean for someone to live in sin? How does that exactly work? Now, here's the deal. If, if we're not careful, and because we haven't read all of chapter five and all of chapter six, we could easily miss what I consider to be like a sweeping analogy or this sweeping metaphor that comes underneath and supports all of what Paul is saying in these two sections. And I think we can describe this sweeping analogy something like this, and I'll put it up on the screen here for us, is that in this passage, in this section of scripture, the concepts of sin and grace they're not presented so much as individual behavior, not so much as the things that I do in my actions, but instead, now don't miss this, but instead they're presented as competing powers that govern life. In other words, sin is presented as a taskmaster. It's presented as a kingdom that someone is in. It is presented as a power and authority that any subject that resides within that kingdom is going to now have sin and its power dictate to them their identity, who they are, which will inevitably spill over into the things that they do. This is why like the idea of kingdom and reign, like this, these, this passage here is saturated with it. It's why in both chapter five and chapter six of Romans here, the word reign is used over and over and over again. Well, why? Well, Paul is introducing here two drastically different kingdoms, sin and grace, that will inevitably shape who you are, your identity, and then ultimately will spill over into what you do. Now, I think this can be a little bit of a struggle for us 
because we live in the United States in the 21st century, we live in this thing called a representative democracy or a republic or something to the equivalent. So for often for us, the idea of kingdom, since we don't live in a monarchy and uh, monarchies are kind of on the decline in our day and age, it, there's kind of a disconnect with that. Like, what, what does that even mean? What's a kingdom? I don't understand. It, it feels a little outdated and archaic. It feels like medieval or maybe even all the way back into biblical times or whatever. So not only can it feel outdated because we don't live in a kingdom, it can ultimately feel irrelevant to us. But here's what we have to understand. When the Bible speaks of kingdoms, it speaks more about influences, the things that influence you and me and the things that hold power over us that causes those certain behaviors. And the best way to illustrate this idea of the kingdom is to think about the magic kingdom. That's right, it's Disney World weekend at the Medina East Campus, right? So think about the magic kingdom for a second. There are things that you can do within the confines and the authority of the magic kingdom that you cannot do anywhere else in the world. <laughs> Some of you are laughing, you know this is true. So for instance, imagine with me, you buy your ticket to Disney World. You drop the $50,000 on that ticket and it costs to go there. And you hand that ticket over to the ticket taker. You go through the turnstile. You step across the threshold into the magic kingdom. And what? You are whisked away into a world of fantasy that you would never know otherwise. Why? Because there's like a power at work. There's a, Disney, there's a dark and sinister Disney World power that lurks in the magic kingdom. I'm telling you. It, and, and, and it's gonna shape inevitably who you are and how you act in that kingdom environment, right? Because we know this. When you step into the magic kingdom, you allow your kids to eat cotton candy for breakfast. Parents, you know that's insane and absurd, but that dark and sinister power lords it over you. You behave in an entirely different way. Disney World is the only place on the planet where you can walk around with fake mouse ears on your head all day and not be completely belittled by your peers or those around you. As a matter of fact, people are probably gonna smile at you and occasionally give you a high five for doing that. And think about this, dads with little girls, you know, you know this is true. You know this principle is at work. Dads, this is the only place, Disney is the only place where you would allow your five-year-old little girl to be hugged by a complete stranger in a Cinderella costume. Now, I don't know about you, that's not gonna fly in my neighborhood, right? If I saw somebody doing that in my neighborhood, I wouldn't be getting out my phone to take a sweet little picture. I'd be getting out my phone to call the cops and then I'd grab my baseball bat and I'd chase Cinderella out of my neighborhood saying, go find your glass slipper somewhere else, girlfriend. I'm gonna turn you into sleeping beauty, you know, that kind of thing. But I mean, think about it. There are things that you are able to do under the power, under the influence in Disney World that you could not do anywhere else. Now, sort of with this idea of kingdoms and these competing kingdoms of sin and of grace, here's what I wanna do. I wanna go back to Romans 6, one through four, and I wanna plug in some of the concepts that we've just talked about into this passage. Kind of like a paraphrase here. I think Paul is saying something like this. What's the conclusion that we should arrive at given this sin-grace principle? Should we just rack up the sin debt to show the greatness of God and his grace? Absolutely not. How can those of us, don't miss this, how can those of us who have been relocated out of sin land still keep a mailing address there? 
Or don't you know that all of us who identified ourselves with Jesus's death and resurrection story, we've left sin land. We're out. We're free of that power. Paul says, we packed our bags with him in this thing called baptism. We went through customs. We got out. We were liberated in order that just as Christ moved into Graceland ahead of us, we too might behave in a way that is consistent with that environment. Rescued out of a dark, terrible, horrible power that dictated us just what our, de- our identity was going to be and just how we were gonna behave, that when sin said jump, we as its subjects born into this thing, we said, how high sin? We have been radically removed and relocated from that dominion, from that kingdom into, because of Christ's death and resurrection, the kingdom of God adopted into God's family, a brand new environment, free to do things that we could never do by God's power when we lived back in the old sinful life. Yeah. And this is it. Like resurrection describes the process, this radical process that Jesus goes before his followers of the relocation. Resurrection is relocation into the kingdom of God such that resurrection now in the present life can be seen as speaking of a life that is now governed by a new power and a new influence. We actually don't have to answer to sin anymore. It's not necessary. We're under a new rule. We're in a new kingdom. We're in a new family. Resurrection and its connection with baptism, as Paul mentions it here in this passage, baptism simply becomes the outward symbol of the inward and spiritual relocation that a Christ follower experiences. Baptism is this outward sign that you put the flag in the ground. You say, I'm identifying with Jesus's death. I'm dying to sin and I'm crossing over to live the new life that God has for me by his power. And resurrection here in this passage, though throughout scripture, there will, there, there speak, the scripture speaks of a, a future bodily resurrection that followers of Jesus will experience. In this passage and in several others in Paul, resurrection's an already thing because you've already been moved out when you follow Jesus. It's an already thing in terms of citizenship. You're no longer citizens enslaved to sin land and its power. Your citizenship has changed. Again, you've been adopted into a new family. And resurrection says that the behavioral stuff, resurrection says that in our behavior, we learn in this new environment to act in ways that are conducive to the new status that God gives a follower of Jesus when he rescues them out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his son. And I tell you what, this perspective shift has radical implications for how we think through our present life. Especially, it has massive implications for those of us Christ followers in this room, I'm speaking to you, who are like, yeah, I'm I'm great with the principle that I've been relocated. When I follow Jesus, I've been relocated out of sin land and I'm now in God's grace. I'm now in God's kingdom. I'm now in his family, but I don't feel any different. I don't feel like the same power that rose Jesus from the grave is like living in me. Now, here's the thing. I think, again, this kingdom principle and the reality of what God has done and the alreadiness of the resurrection has massive implications for how we think about this. And it gives us a better perspective on what's really happening when we sense that tension. 
I think in many ways, I've already mentioned it, resurrection and this idea of being relocated is very similar to the notion of a child who has been adopted, who came out of a, 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 like a foreign nation or a foreign environment and has been reworked into a new family. It, it changes the perspective. And, and as I was doing some preparation for this and kind of study on this, I found one woman's story to be absolutely fascinating. And the amount of parallels that we're gonna hear in this story as I read it to us, the parallels to the concepts that we have been talking about, uh, one woman's story about adopting uh, a little girl from the Siberian area of Russia and, and, the, and the tensions and the struggles to get her incorporated into this new family life. Uh, let's listen to what she says here. She says, uh, Dr. T couldn't have been more pleased with Julia's progress. At 18 months, my baby was in the 95th percentile for her weight. She was talking, walking, her muscle tone was excellent. And all of these were good signs for a child adopted just 14 months earlier from a Siberian orphanage. I explained to the doctor that my precious blonde daughter, an exceptionally radiant child, she doesn't cling to me. She doesn't look me in the eye. She doesn't tolerate being held. She doesn't reach for my hand. She doesn't let me read to her or play with her. She's kind of manic, I said to the doctor, wondering if that was really a good word to use. My daughter's restless when she's restrained in a crib or a stroller, and she never relaxes in a tender embrace. She's controlling and difficult, not sometimes, all the time. And without missing a beat, the doctor responded, well, you could be describing something called reactive attachment disorder. RAD, as I would later discover, is a syndrome seen in many adopted children, particularly from Russia and Eastern Europe. You see, these babies have trouble attaching to their adoptive parents because they have been traumatized or neglected for so long in their former environment. And thus they view the adopted parent as just another caretaker who is probably going to leave them, probably going to abandon them. Though they are young, deep down they believe the only ones they can trust are themselves. It's a complex condition not generally understood by many pediatricians or many people for that matter. She continues, over time, we started to see more engagement with Julia. It wasn't necessarily loving and warm at first, but it started to move in the right direction because in our love, we were drawing her out. She became more capable of showing emotion rather than indifference. And as her verbal skills developed, we had the advantage of being able to explain to her that we loved her and that we would never leave her. We would never abandon her, that she was safe with us. We taught her how to feel at ease when we looked her in the eye and trained her to do the same. And she comments, progress took a very long time. And the work of staying bonded with a wounded child is indeed a lifetime endeavor. This thing is gonna span the entirety of Julia's life. But Julia stepped out of the danger zone when she was about five or six. That's when she started to take off her helmet. That's when she started to take off her armor. She let me become her mother. And now at 11 years old, she is a marvel to me. It's not just her ace sense of humor which enables her to draw sophisticated cartoons or to play the violin with skill or to do really well in school. Listen to this. Julia's greatest accomplishment is allowing the love 
that always exists in our family into her life. And while that's second nature for most families, for our family, it's a triumph. See, guys, I think the more that we remember and remind ourselves of the kind of love expressed by a father who would send his son to die and rise again so that we could be relocated, rescued out of sinland, and placed on the firm foundation and footing in God's kingdom to be worked into solidly into God's family, to be called a son, to be called a daughter. The more and more we remember that, especially as Christ's followers, the more we realize that lingering sin that still exists in our lives, the struggles that each one of us has, has in one degree to one degree or the next, those are simply leftovers from having lived under the tyranny of enslavement in sin for as long as we did. See, for many Christ followers, we have this idea running around in our heads that when we screw up, when we sin, that God looks at us across the table with a stern glance, furrowed brow, raises a wagging finger and says, how dare you do that in my kingdom? That's not how we roll here. That's not how we do things in my family. One more strike, and I'm telling you, I swear I will. No. Think about the perspective shift. God has moved heaven and earth to send his son to buy you out of that old life and place you into his family. Instead, if you're a Christ follower that struggles with the reality of resurrection power in your life and the struggles with sin, here's the picture you need. You need to know that God looks at you in the eye. He places his hand on top of yours and he tenderly and affectionately says, you don't need to do that anymore. It's not necessary. You left it behind. You don't need that thing in your life anymore. I've got you. I, son, daughter, I won't leave you. I won't abandon you. I'm here with you. And it, the same power that I exercised to bring you into my family is the same power I want you to grow and learn the rhythms of as you walk with me in life. You don't need to do that anymore. You see, I think if Jesus rose from the dead, it has some amazing implications for our present life. Just that perspective shift alone changes everything. The resurrection says that I don't have to wait to live the kind of life that God wants for me until Jesus comes back. The reality is the resurrection says that if you're a follower of Jesus, if you bought into him by faith, that you have access to resurrection power already. And you are now invited by a loving father who won't leave you and who gives you the tools to do it to increasingly learn more and more progressively the rhythms and the habits of the new world, the new kingdom, the new family that God has brought you into. I love what the apostle Paul says in Colossians 1:14. With some of these kingdom concepts in mind, 
Just read this with some fresh eyes if you've already read it before. Paul says that God, he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. He's brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. It's an already thing. In whom we have redemption. Redemption, big, churchy, like Bible word. It simply means that God bought you out of sin by paying the ultimate price and the sacrifice of his son so that you could be reworked and brought into his family. And often in the New Testament, especially for Paul, the word redemption and the notion of resurrection overlap, if not be synonymous on many occasions. So Paul says, man, he brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I'm gonna ask the band to come up. And uh, as we kind of close things down, hopefully land a little bit, here's what I wanna do. I wanna address uh, two, I think, audiences that are in the room today. And the first audience is, if you are not a follower of Jesus. In other words, if you've never said yes to Jesus, if you've never experienced this radical relocation of Christ by dying to sin with Jesus and his death and rising to a different kind of life, I would just want to tell you that in this kingdom of sin, the Bible frequently uses language of the experience in that kingdom or under that power. It frequently uses the language of darkness and despair. It talks about being hopeless. It talks about being alienated from life with God. It talks about bitterness, anger, self-centeredness. And I would just submit to you do some of those words that describe living under the power and the authority and enslavement to sin, does that describe some of your life experience? Because the reality is that the resurrection says that God doesn't want that for you anymore. And he has paid the ultimate price. He has gone to great lengths to give you a free gift of being transferred from the kingdom of darkness and placed as a member of his family that you can relate and interact with God in powerful ways as your father. So I would just submit to you, if you're not a Christ follower, that describes your life and you want out, there's no magical incantation that you need to do, nothing that you need to recite. The gift of God's grace in Christ is free. I would encourage you, I would implore you on Christ's behalf to say yes to Jesus and experience a radical relocation. Say yes to Jesus. And here's the thing, if you do that, here's what I'm gonna ask you to do. If you could just grab one of those connect cards in the seat backs in front of you, just let us know, let us know that you did that. Because here's the thing, we wanna celebrate with you. And we also wanna resource you in the rhythms and the habits of that new life that you've been brought into. We exist at Grace Church to resource and equip in that life. We want to not only encourage you to dive into God's word, his message to us, the way he communicates with us. We would also want to, want to encourage you to get connected in biblical community. Other Christ followers, other people around you who are there for you, who are God's means to help you grow in this new life. But here's the thing, if you're not a follower of Jesus and God's working on your heart right now and you want out, just say yes to Jesus. Say yes to Jesus. And then the second audience, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, if you planted the flag and you said, I've died to sin with Christ and I've raised to new life, 
But if you're feeling the, the dysfunction, right, the, the, the pull toward those old habits, you know, Paul says elsewhere that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And if you're a Christ follower here today who is sensing the tension between I'm a new creation and I'm an alcoholic, or if you're a follower of Jesus that feels the frustration of I'm a new creation, but I can't get rid of that porn in my life. Man, if you're a Christ follower who who goes through the mental dysphoria, the anguish of, man, I'm a new creation, but every relationship that I walk into, I destroy. I want to appeal back to the reality of a loving father who sits across a table from you, puts his hand on yours and says, I brought you out. I've given you everything you need. Become who you already are by the power that I give you. A God that says to you and me, you don't have to do that anymore. You can be free. Maybe as the band plays, as we sing together, maybe just take this time as a Christ follower to hand that over one more time to God. Invite his spirit who is given to followers of Jesus to bring us from, I just walked into this brand new world all the way to Jesus's return and the full-blown resurrection. Let's pray together. Father, we should probably just start by saying thank you should probably express our gratitude again and again and again and again for the amazing work that you have done in your power to offer forgiveness, to offer a new life that doesn't have to be characterized by sin and its power in our lives anymore. God, we could not do that. God, I confess right now, there's there's no way I could have done more or worked harder to escape the clutches of enslavement to sin. Father, that's you, and you deserve all praise for that. That you redeemed us, you purchased us, you bought us back, and you placed us into your family. God, thank you for that. God, and as we respond here in song, help our hearts to be ignited by that truth once again, to truly respond and praise you and worship with everything that we have. It's your breath in our lungs, God. Fill us with that breath that is able to reflect praise out of our mouths back to you as we sing. And God, for both audiences in this room, for the folks that don't follow Jesus and have yet to say yes, and for the folks that do, God, I pray that a fresh vision and perspective of just your majesty and beauty and the sacrifice you made to bring us into a relationship with you. God, I pray that for each and every one of us individually, wherever we're at, whatever specific thing we're wrestling with today, that God, we would be able to see you as the loving father who invites us into a new relationship, a new family, a new kingdom, and that we can genuinely in the present time learn the rhythms and the habits of this amazing new life that you've brought us into. Thank you, Jesus, for doing it all for us and for being obedient to the father's plan to help us out. And we pray all this in the name of you, Jesus. Amen.